Um, but if you have... Hello! I'll give you a piece of paper with... Hi! How are you? Is, is this... May I have your attention, please? Hi, Bill. I don't know whether that's huh. it or not. I wonder if this is on. Am I okay? I can usually shout down any mob, so it's hard to say. Anyway. Could I ask you please to come in and take your seats? We want to get started. We've got a lot to say in this panel, and we've got some very high-powered speakers to follow us. My name is Fred Hitz, and it's a pleasure to be here on this extraordinary day for Princeton and for the Woodrow Wilson School. And it's a particular pleasure of mine to be sitting with such distinguished panel members. I asked Peggy Hamburg, whom I met for the first time, if she wouldn't mind leading off, and she kindly consented to do so. What I've asked uh, each of our panelists to do is to speak for no more than 15 minutes so we could have a good question and answer session at the end. Peggy Hamburg is currently the senior scientist at the Nuclear Threat Initiative in Washington, D.C. She describes it as a charitable organization working to reduce the global threats from nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons. She has also been an assistant secretary for planning and evaluation at the United States Department of Health and Human Services, which uh, involved a primary policy role to the secretary of HEW. I first read about her when she was Commissioner of Health for the City of New York, a job she held for six years. And uh, she has to be considered one of the pioneers of those who had the responsibility to worry about bioterrorism in the nation's biggest city. She's a graduate of Harvard Radcliffe uh, and the Harvard Medical School. And Peggy, it's a pleasure to have you here at Princeton, and the microphone is yours. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here and to be helping in the celebration of the Woodrow Wilson's 75th anniversary. It's a wonderful institution with a remarkable history and I think a future that will uh, prove to be very, very important as we all grapple together with an extraordinary array of difficult and complex challenges uh, in both our domestic um, activities, and most importantly, in the international arena. So even though I can claim no Princeton affiliations, um, I am very glad to be part of the Princeton family today uh, and, and hope in the future as well. Um, while I am most expert on infectious disease and biological threats, including um, biological terrorism, I am actually addressing the broader question posed to the panel um, with some examples from the biological world. Um, but we were given the charge, homeland security, how safe can we be? And I guess I never learned the lesson that many students did, that you answer the question you know the most about rather than the <laughs> question that's asked, uh, even if the question asked is harder. Um, so it was probably a mistake. But um, I think it's, it is very, very important um, at this moment in time to be thinking about um, how safe are we and can we be safer and what does it mean to be safe. And these are, are really tough questions, almost existential. 
The term homeland security is used in many ways by many people. Um, I'm not going to try to define it, but I will up front offer some of my biases about um, what it means and what it takes to strengthen our homeland security. In my view, homeland security is not just about protection against terrorism or military attack. It involves protection against a range of threats to public safety, uh, to uh, critical infrastructure, to our economy and our social cohesiveness. It's certainly not just about trying to keep bad guys or bad things out. In our global world, there are no walls high enough or screens tight enough to do this. And also, we have plenty of bad guys and bad things right here within our borders. So we must, I think, take a different approach. Obviously, in our modern world, sad to say, the threat of terrorism, especially catastrophic terrorism, is a grave concern. It lies at the heart of so much of what is being done to address homeland security today. But as Hurricane Katrina reminds us, Mother Nature can also be a powerful terrorist. And as a public health professional, I'm sobered by the very real and imminent threat of pandemic flu, which I think is as bad as anything any uh, terrorist can uh, think of, as well as by the daily devastation caused by diseases such as HIV, AIDS, TB, malaria, and others all over the world with serious implications both for health and for security. So what can we do to make us safer? I think we must think both about prevention and response. Across a range of threats, early warning and preparedness are key. Translating knowledge into action is also key. Again, as Hurricane Katrina vividly illustrated in the negative, I must say, um, we had very good information. We knew a Class 5 hurricane was approaching the Gulf Coast. We knew the special vulnerabilities of New Orleans. We knew that the levees weren't as strong as they could be. Um, we actually had a written plan for responding uh, to a Class 5 hurricane uh, hitting New Orleans, yet we were woefully unable to respond appropriately. Um, ironically, we not only knew about the vulnerabilities of New Orleans with respect to a natural event like a hurricane, we also had thought about it considerably in the context of terrorism. It would take just a few strategically placed bombs uh, to blow out, blow out the levees and produce the kind of flooding um, damage and uh, chaos that we witnessed uh, with Hurricane Katrina. So um, getting back to the question of, of can we be safer, we have to first recognize that there are many different competing priorities for homeland security, different needs with different implications and very different costs. How do we decide? Threat assessment is really hard. We have poor intelligence information about many of the most important threats before us, inadequate understanding of the motivation and intent of, of uh, terrorists uh, with regard to that particular concern. We have considerable complacency about naturally occurring threats. Um, and above all, I think we have a need for new thinking uh, given the rapidly transforming world in which we live. Uh, what cry do you use to prioritize threats? 
Uh, some say, oh, that's easy. It's risk to life. But when you really get down and think about it, that isn't necessarily so. We have many other critical uh, needs to think about. And if we were just thinking about risk to life, we would have a very uh, different um, array of investments. Certainly threats like the nuclear and biological uh, terrorism threat are real possibilities and perhaps the most catastrophic that we face. But conventional bombs, suicide bombers, dirty bombs, probably easier to do, certainly, than a nuclear attack. Um, they have a big disruptive impact, a um, lot of economic uh, implications, which terrorists uh, like. They can kill a lot of people, and they make good media. Um, and even without uh, taking a single human life, um, there are ways to cause enormic, enormous economic disruption, uh, such as cyber terrorism, which we'll uh, hear more about today, or cyber attack, um, agricultural terrorism, one case of uh, bovine spongiform encephalitis can undo um, the uh, meat industry, for example. Natural disasters we know can have uh, huge uh, importance uh, to life as we know it. And of course, longstanding concerns uh, that are at the intersection of uh, safety and security, such as organized crime, drug trafficking, et cetera. Uh, but I think really today the main focus was intended to be on terrorism, and I will um, now try to focus in on that. Um, but it's important to underscore, I think, that there are a range of, of threats that go much beyond uh, the threat of terrorism that we're so focused on today. But if we're smart, we can do many things that will make us safer and stronger, both against terrorism and against uh, a set of, of other serious and very real concerns. Clearly, in addressing the threat of terrorism, we're not going to have any victory parades. We can't kill, capture, or deter every determined terrorist, nor can we stop Mother Nature. Um, but we can find many ways to reduce the threat and limit the damage. Broadly speaking, and I want to um, try to, to give a broad context and then a few specific examples of things that can be done before I'm yanked um, from the podium. So broadly speaking, we must examine and limit our nation's vulnerabilities. We have to strengthen systems for preparedness and response. We have to harden vulnerable targets and eliminate unnecessary risk. We must contain proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, particularly those that truly might threaten our survival. We must contain the capabilities, global reach, and financial resources of terrorists and terrorist organizations. We must proactively seek to change our place in the world as well, to reduce the spread of hatred, to reduce the conditions that foster terrorism and allow it to take hold. And we must be thoughtful about our response to the threats before us. We need more strategic action and real leadership. There is, I think, a danger of overreacting lots of activity without well-defined plans or objectives, the danger of throwing money at a problem without uh, standards and measurable goals, uh, without a blueprint for action. And there is a real danger of continually trying to address yesterday's threat. A few specific issues of concern. One and I think the most important that I just touched on is we need a real strategic plan, a comprehensive strategy or framework with supporting fiscal priorities. 
a plan that lays out critical needs, goals, and objectives, that identifies the critical players with well-defined authority, accountability, and mechanisms for coordination, one that reaches across many agencies and activities, levels of government, and across sectors. Importantly, it must be accompanied by the necessary dollars and appropriate skills, expertise, and other requirements. And it must be undertaken in a sustained way, not just the kind of crisis du jour approach that so often we fall prey to. And despite an effort to provide new leadership focus and coordination post 9-11, especially with the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, I think we're still a long way from where we need to be. And again, Hurricane Katrina revealed to us that we still haven't adequately addressed even the simple question of who's in charge and how and showed how quickly things can devolve into chaos. Secondly, we need dramatic shifts in how we communicate and coordinate. Today's threats require new approaches. We must recognize the multi multidisciplinary nature of both the problems and of effective solutions. We can't stovepipe knowledge or response. We require non-traditional partners to be effective, way beyond the traditional way that we think about response to, to catastrophic events uh, such as terrorism involving uh, intelligence, law enforcement, and traditional first responders. We need uh, really well-integrated um, public-private partnerships. So many of the elements that are critical to preparedness and response, as well as to prevention, lie outside of government and are not directly controlled by government, but yet have not really been fully brought into our preparedness planning and integrated into what must be done. Whether talking prevention or response, situational awareness is key, and it's much harder in today's complex world. We need improved information sharing and application of modern information technologies. This will provide better intelligence and improvements in mitigation and response. Uh, we need sophisticated IT applications uh, for data mining. We need better communication systems for piecing together discrete pieces of information so that they can form a whole and provide key new insights and understandings. And it also uh, is very important that we apply uh, modern communications and information technologies um, to tracking um, uh, emerging trends in the biological area um, having systems that will help us identify when, when unexpectedly large numbers of people are entering emergency rooms with fever of unknown origin that might be the first indicator that a disease outbreak, possibly bioterrorism, possibly natural disease, might be taking place. And certainly we know from 9-11 uh, the problem of disparate information that if brought together uh, might have given us um, the, the powerful knowledge uh, to make a difference, um, probably not prevent, but one never knows. Planning is key, and we must practice what we plan. 
You have to get all the partners together. You don't want people exchanging business cards for the first time in the middle of a crisis. We have to identify weaknesses in our plans and be realistic about it. When I was health commissioner in New York City, we did a simulation of a sarin attack in the subway system. Uh, all the firemen went right down into the subway, um, even though the gas was being released. And afterwards, I said to the fire commissioner, you know, we have to find a better way because all of your firemen would be dead. And he said, not my men. They might have lost consciousness, but they wouldn't have died. <laughs> we, we need redundancies in the system so that when unexpectedly a critical piece of the plan doesn't work, like it's underwater, um, that we have a secondary mechanism, whether it's for communication or for providing health care. I'm, I'm getting the evil eye here, um, so I'll try to move uh, quickly through a couple of other points. Um, we need, underlying all of our efforts at preparedness, a very sound R&D agenda that ranges from basic science to applied research. We need new drugs, vaccines, diagnostics, detectors so we can recognize threats emerging in the environment or uh, in humans or animals. We need to better understand systems for protection, whether it's building an airline safety or air handling or masks. We need to know about um, decontamination. When is it safe to go back after an attack, whether it's anthrax or a dirty bomb? We need to model different scenarios and try interventions when we can't and don't want to experience the real thing. Um, and we need a lot more investment in behavioral, social, and political science uh, to better understand the nature of the threats, the nature of human response, how to communicate risks, um, how to balance security and civil liberties. Uh, the list goes on. Uh, let me just add, and I'm going to be killed after this, but I cannot um, uh, make a presentation on this topic without just saying that the fundamental concept of homeland security makes me nervous. Um, it is not as though we live in a world where we can cocoon ourselves off um, as one nation safe and secure from that messy, dangerous world outside. We live in a global village. We must recognize our interconnectedness, and we must develop strategies that reflect that. We must work together, government to government. We must strengthen international institutions. We must strengthen relationships among professional societies, amongst NGOs, multinational industries and corporations. We must think in new ways and act in new ways if we are going to be safe and secure in new ways. I think the Woodrow Wilson School epitomizes some of the best thinking about international relations and um, will be providing um, the scholarship the strategies and the leaders of the future. So I'm very, very pleased to be part of this celebration, as I said, and to, I hope, become part of the, the family of the Woodrow Wilson School. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Peggy. Uh, far from being killed, you'd be surprised. I know you came here first, but you'd be surprised how Closely, your remarks segue into what the dean of the Woodrow Wilson School was saying across the street to the alumni this morning about uh, the school's plans for the future and that integration uh, of so many different professional disciplines, which 
gives me an easy way to introduce our next speaker, Professor Ed Felton of the Computer Science Department and the Woodrow Wilson School. Ed notes, uh, and I think it's fitting within his uh, professional competence, that according to Google, he's the only person in the world with a job title Professor of Computer Science and Public Affairs. <laughs> Fair enough. We'll take it that way. I first read about Ed a couple of years ago when he got into the middle as the university's expert witnesses, students were downloading uh, in their computers the music from all over the territory. So he's a man who can take the heat. Uh, he is a graduate of uh, Caltech in physics and in computer science from the University of Washington and has been on the Princeton faculty since 1993. Ed, the podium is yours. Thanks. Well, it's an honor to be asked to uh, participate in this panel and to uh, address this very distinguished audience. Although I have to say that as a Princeton professor, I often look out at the class and recognize that I'm talking to uh, people who will be in the same distinguished position down the road. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about cyber attack and the problem of cyber attack. This is an issue that is scary and confusing to many people, including computer scientists in many cases. And uh, I don't have time for the six-part lecture that would be required to really go in depth, but I will give you a sort of impressionistic view of some of the important uh, issues relating to cyber attack. And the first one is the distinction between cyber attack and cyber terror. And my view is that cyber attack is a serious problem that we need to worry about, but cyber terror is not. And the reason is that for the, if you look at the goal of a terrorist to kill people in a spectacular fashion, to make people fear for their life and health, cyber means are not well suited to that, uh, to that kind of terrorist goal. Um, cyber, means, uh, cyber means of attack are well suited to causing economic harm and social disruption, but not so much to injuring people. We've probably all heard the, um, the, the, uh, the movie plot stories about, uh, which are possible, stories about, for example, someone hacking into the air traffic control system and causing planes to fly into mountainsides, uh, someone hacking into the control system for the, uh, uh, for the levees in, um, uh, and, and water system, uh, the lower Mississippi, and opening up the valves. And those things are indeed possible, but for an adversary who is out to cause harm and a harm to health and life, uh, bombs are a much more, uh, much easier and lower risk approach. And so I think cyber terror is not the thing that we should lose sleep over, but I do think we need to worry about cyber attacks launched by people who either want to cause us economic harm or disrupt our way of life, or launched by people who just want to cause mischief or steal money and as a side effect uh, end up causing economic harm and disruption. Now, um, the uh, the question we were asked on this panel is, how safe are we? And indeed, when it comes to cyber attacks, we are vulnerable. And we're vulnerable um, for uh, three basic reasons. First, that computers are everywhere. A and when I talk about computers, I mean not just the things that are sold and marketed as computers, but other things which really are computers in other clothing, cell phones, for example. Almost any electronic gadget that we have, we carry around or have in our homes or our offices, really is a computer in different clothing. 
And all of those are possible targets for cyber attack, not just the things that, um, not just the things that are labeled as computers. These devices are increasingly all connected. They're wired together or they communicate wirelessly. And finally, they all run buggy software. Um, these things together mean that an adversary who wants to cause us harm has plenty of targets, a way to reach those targets, and a way, having reached them, to, uh, to hijack them and, and turn them to, to bad ends. Now, this problem of buggy software always gets a chuckle, but I think few people recognize how serious it really is. Um, you might ask how many, how, how, how common are security bugs? And in fact, they're very common. How many security bugs are there in a typical computer like the laptop I have in front of me? Well, um, in years of studying uh, security critical systems and looking, at, looking for and at security bugs, the rule of thumb that I've developed for myself is that you have about one serious security bug for every 10,000 lines of software code. A, a typical computer has about 100 million lines of code in it, relies upon about 100 million lines of software code. That means 10,000 bugs. And, when, and what I mean here is 10,000 security bugs which are serious enough to allow the computer to be completely taken over by an adversary and are as yet undiscovered. What this means is that an adversary who wants to cause great harm and has even a moderate level of technical sophistication can find perhaps a few dozen of these bugs fairly quickly and then use them to cause whatever havoc they would like to cause. Now, this number, these numbers, and the bottom line of about 10,000 undiscovered serious security bugs in a typical computer gives you an idea of how far we as computer scientists are from being able to produce the level of quality and security that's needed. We are clearly several quantum leaps in computer science understanding away from being able to solve this problem. So it's not just a matter of Microsoft working harder. It really is a fundamental problem that we are not able to produce high-quality software. All right. Um, now, so we are vulnerable, and it seems unlikely that any of the factors on the previous screen are likely to go away. There will be many computers. They will be connected, and they will run buggy software. I want to turn now to the types of attacks that we might worry about. And they really fall into two categories. The, the, the kind that, that we often hear the most about um, are targeted attacks, where an adversary picks a particular target, like, say, the um, financial systems of Citibank, or, uh, or some, um, just, just to pick uh, an arbitrary example, some large institution where there's great value centralized at one place. That's a, a targeted cyber attack. But the kind that is in some ways more difficult to cope with is the diffuse cyber attack that strikes not uh, very hard in one place, but with modest force in a great many places at the same time. So I want to talk for a minute about diffuse cyber attacks which are in, in many ways the more difficult type to cope with. After all, a, a, an attack which might be aimed at a particular institution can be defended against by the efforts of that institution. But an attack that aims at all of us is much harder to, to defend against. So a diffuse cyber attack, first of all, spreads virally. Um, that is, it's injected at one point and it spreads as a computer virus or some similar kind of infection from one place to another. So viral spread is like some of the biological attacks that we might worry about. But unlike those biological attacks, cyber attacks, uh, uh, cyber attacks have, some, have some different characteristics. Uh, diffuse cyber attacks can be launched anonymously from afar. There's no need for 
for an attacker to come to the United States, to come to the developed world even, in order to launch a cyber, a diffuse cyber attack. Because it spreads virally, the infection can be injected anywhere. These attacks uh, aim to cause economic harm or disruption rather than uh, a harm to health or life. And the economic harm and disruption simply comes from the fact that so much of what we do is organized and scheduled and managed by computer these days. Everything from the registration and travel, the travel plans that many of you had to come here, the, uh, the arrangements to, um, uh, to put this entire uh, Wilson School event together, not to mention things like the, the, um, the, the Girl Scout camping trip and, um, and the course schedule and grades of Princeton students, not to mention health records and many other things that are stored in computers. As these things become unavailable, great harm and disruption can happen. Perhaps not tremendous harm to any individual, but when you multiply by a large number of individuals, a serious problem. So modest harm to many people. And finally, these attacks can happen either very quickly or in a very stealthy manner. The attacker has to choose between these two. When I say very fast, what I mean is that from the moment an attack is first injected at one place in the world until it's infected all of the susceptible machines in the world and done whatever harm it's going to do is about eight minutes. Um, we have seen cyber attacks that spread worldwide within that period of time. We have not, fortunately, we have not yet seen one that spreads that quickly and is aimed to have a devastating effect. Uh, but it's well understood by our adversaries how to do that. Uh, now, eight minutes is obviously faster than any human system can react. There's no way that we're going to be able to ring alarm bells and bring the um, computer experts of the world into the office to, to address this problem. Alternatively, cyber attacks can spread in a very stealthy fashion, uh, spreading over a matter of weeks in a way that is very difficult even for experts to, to, to detect. And, and so we have a serious problem. As of yet, we've been lucky that no adversary has used the knowledge that is available and floating around out there about how to launch a cyber attack in order to cause as much harm as, as in order to cause maximum harm. The attacks we've seen have been mostly uh, people showing off. Look, I can write a cyber attack that can, uh, that can infect many of the machines in the world in eight minutes. But fortunately, that person uh, chose not to cause damage after infecting so many systems. Next time, we might not be so lucky. So what we have, because these attacks are diffuse, we have the problem of how to protect the infrastructure. And the cyber infrastructure is, un, is a bit unusual among infrastructures in ways that make it uh, somewhat more difficult to protect. First of all, the cyber infrastructure is privately owned, almost universally, not owned by government. It's owned by private parties. That can be said of other important infrastructures, like, say, the electric power system. But unlike those, the cyber infrastructure is also widely decentralized. The power infrastructure is owned and run by a relatively concentrated industry, uh, which is well organized and has a history of working with government, as well as a strong safety culture. The cyber infrastructure is owned to a great extent by people, by individuals, by small businesses, by uh, elementary schools, and all the different organizations, uh, and not so much by large and, and, uh, uh, and focused institutions. And that, that poses particular problems. The cyber infrastructure is privately built, of course. It's built by a private industry, and it's shaped by a very powerful market. There was a time when government was an important uh, was a very important purchaser, perhaps, um, perhaps the dominant purchaser of computer systems. And so government could use its power as a buyer to push the market in a direction of 
of improving security. But those days are long past. There are now powerful economic forces that cause systems to be designed the way they are and uh, important economic externalities that cause people to underinvest in securing their individual systems. And so we have here a very difficult problem uh, for which government has relatively few levers. Now, uh, it appears that I've timed things about right because I've about come to the end of my 15 minutes, and Fred is going to blow the whistle before I have uh, a chance to, uh, uh, to display my, uh, the relative futility of my solutions to this problem. Uh, so let me just say quickly that... <laughs> Let me just say quickly that uh, this is indeed a problem where government has relatively few levers, where the solution, whatever it is, has to come from the private sector and not just from a few large companies, but by, cha but by changes that all of us are going to make. How to get all of us, including the, uh, uh, the experts who should know better, to, uh, to, uh, to, to behave differently in order to mitigate this problem is, uh, I think, still not understood. Uh, although... Um, I hope that we are educating a generation of students who can help to work on that problem. Thank you. Thank you. Our next speaker is the only member of our panel who is on active duty in the federal government concerning himself with these issues. Peggy has spent her time, Ed is a consultant, I did my time for a while, but Jan is out there uh, carrying the rifle. He's the business liaison director with the private sector of the Office of the Department of Homeland Security. And I asked him to come to Princeton to make this talk. He was unaware that his ultimate boss, Mike Chertoff, would be following him at 2 <laughs> o'clock. So, Jan, I have absolute faith in your ability to state the case and not get into any trouble. I've known Jan for years. He was a year ahead of me in law school. He's a devoted public servant. He served in the uh, Energy Department and um, in a number of other big jobs in Washington. And he brings to government service a unique perspective because for 18 years he worked for the Union Carbide Corporation he is an uh, degree, advanced degree uh, chemical engineer as well as a lawyer. That's a pretty fearsome combination. Jan, welcome to Princeton, and let her rip. Thank you, Fred. Um, I am thrilled to be here and to participate in this recognition of public service and in particular, the 75 years of supporting public service by the Woodrow Wilson School. I'm also thrilled because both of our children had the privilege to attend this fabulous university. Our son actually got his degree in Woody Woo, and our daughter in East Asian Studies went to the Harvard Law School where she had a wonderful lecture, professor, Slaughter. Unfortunately, she's left the law school to come here. And uh, she and I talked after our daughter's class, and I was really pleased at her Socratic method. Many of her peers don't do that anymore. Um, and now our daughter is in public service. She's working at the SEC, having worked three years in the criminal division of the Department of Justice. I want to get, talk about five points. Uh, I want to talk a little and then give a conclusion. Uh, talk about our unique office, which actually speaks to what Peggy was talking about. Talk about the second stage review and what Secretary Chertoff priorities are, although he'll talk more eloquently about that this afternoon. 
talk a little bit about DHS and disasters, and then something, a couple things that are more particular to this particular audience, and those are the factors that affect the government's ability to function well, and in particular, the differences between managing in the federal government versus managing anywhere in the private sector. It's not reflected upon, not talked about, but there are enormous differences. And then my conclusion is that public service is very difficult. It's essential in our democracy. Graduates prepared by Woody Woo are required in our society. And it's one of the places where some quotes of Teddy Roosevelt about public service are learned and aspired to. First, our office. The statute that created the Department of Homeland Security created a position which does not exist anywhere else in the United States government, special assistant to the secretary for the private sector with about 10 tasks. The basic proposition is what Peggy talked about, to promote cooperation between the private sector and the department, because other than law enforcement, essentially everything we're going to do as a society to reduce our vulnerabilities to terrorism or major natural disasters is going to be done by the private sector. We are within the department essentially a cheerleader for the private sector. Externally, we are like an ombudsman in that anybody from anywhere is more than welcome to call us and try to get assistance or guidance or help. We're a small office, 15 people. It's an experiment in government. We're trying to make it work. We think it is. You all will ultimately be able to evaluate us. Second stage review. When the secretary came in in early this year, he asked in effect, the department, predominantly the career, but also the political leadership, to think about what were the major issues that we ought to be thinking about now that we're two years into this experiment. I've been at the department since May of 03. Uh, and out of that, there were 16 groups put together who considered everything from border security, non-immigrant visas, uh, operations centers, uh, relations with the Congress, and with the rest of the, the uh, governmental uh, establishment. There were a series of recommendations made, reviewed by the secretary, as well as work that he did with a smaller group on reorganizational ideas. He announced his uh, major emphasis to be in mid-July, and they are, not surprisingly, uh, preparedness to increase our overall level of preparedness, particularly for catastrophic events, bio, nuclear and natural disaster. And to that end, I'll interrupt right now to say that essentially everything that Peggy said and recommended, we at the administration are essentially working on. We may not be working on it at the pace that many would like, but we're working on them. And, don't disagree, and I don't disagree with the suggestion she made. One in particular uh, we've made a lot of progress on, and that deals with the, in effect, a strategy for the nation dealing with uh, or overall protection called the National Infrastructure Protection Plan. That's actually going to be out for uh, review and discussion within the critical infrastructure sectors within a matter of weeks. And then will all only be published as a uh, departmental and governmental document. It's also being worked on with the other uh, parts of the government, each of which, for instance, Treasury is responsible for the finance sector, energy for the energy sector, et cetera. Transportation security is another one of our priorities, dealing with creating better systems to move people and goods more securely. Borders and immigration, to strengthen our border security, the interior enforcement, of wherein we've got uh, illegal aliens, but also to look at the issues dealing with non-immigrant visas, the issues of students, professors, tourists, business travelers. 
information sharing at all levels of government and with the private sector, management, i.e. procurement, financial, and organization. All the policy steps are underway. The realignments are going to wait until budget uh, issues have been resolved, we have a final budget and some legislative approval. The Department and disasters, how safe can we be? We cannot be totally safe. We've never been totally safe. We're not totally safe in our private lives, and we're not totally safe as a nation. But I think with the context of the sorts of things that Peggy was describing, what we have underway every day, bit by bit, we get a bit safer. We'll never be perfectly safe. We're struggling to work on prevention, protection, response, and recovery in a variety of contexts, both our department, other departments, private sector, non-government agencies. I think that there's no question in my mind that the nation is better prepared today for a major natural disaster or a terrorist disaster than we were six years ago, two years ago, much less four years ago. I'd also say that individuals at every level of government made mistakes as it related to Katrina and in some cases made mistakes in the years prior. Not the same individuals, but there are a fair number that have already been identified. I'd also say that it, as one thinks about what, is, what should be a conclusion, I think reorganizing the Department of Homeland Security and uh, removing FEMA from it and making it independent would be a colossal mistake. And I think also it should be known and recognized that we actually in the government started collecting lessons learned uh, at least three weeks ago, to my own personal knowledge, of, so that we could and we will have after-action meetings to try to focus on, with ourselves and state governments, what we could do better in the hopefully unlikely event, but the possible event of something like this happening again. Unfortunately, national exercises, even like ones we had in April, wherein there was actually the notion of an anthrax attack here in northern New Jersey and a chemical attack in Connecticut, they, unfortunately, are tame compared to the real thing. Katrina has been a tragedy, a devastating tragedy for thousands of individuals, for communities, for almost every segment of society that you can think of. The response that took place was not smooth. It was had problems. But as a result of that, the response to any other catastrophe of a similar nature, or a dirty bomb, or a biological attack, is likely to be better. And for that, there is a little bit of reason to be pleased that we're going to learn something, albeit at a terrible cost. Teddy Roosevelt had some pertinent thoughts regarding this. He said, we must remember not to judge any public servant by any one act, and especially should we, we should we be aware of attacking the men who are merely the occasion and not the cause of the disaster. Let me talk a second about the public's attitude toward government. It's evolved over the last 25 years as presidential candidates have run against the government. Political appointees are in much greater supply today than they were at the end of the Second World War when there were about 50 uh, people confirmed by the Senate. Now it's over 500. There are over uh, 2,000 political appointees in, uh, in the individual departments in addition. They tend to stay a short time, have less job-specific knowledge than their career peers. 
uh, ambition within the career service, the ambitious people lower down see that their ceiling is now being uh, cut off earlier. So they are inclined to leave the government sooner than they might have otherwise. These, figure, these factors arguably make the government function a little less well than before. Others suggest that having more political appointees is necessary in order to persuade government bureaucracy to implement the policy agenda of whatever is the then current administration. Now, there's actually a recent paper by a Woodrow Wilson professor, David Lewis, that suggests that agencies run managed by political appointees who are confirmed by the Senate are less well managed than are those that are run by the senior executive service, which is the group just below the, the appointees just appointed by the Senate. However, he also says there seems to be no difference in the management of, at the senior executive service level, the management of career or non-career officials. So in light of that and then a couple other technical questions I have about the analysis, I'm not sure that I'm yet prepared to endorse these findings. Now let me talk a little bit about the substantial differences between trying to manage in the federal government versus managing in the private sector. Most of the people in this room are currently in the private sector, and they probably in a variety of times had abilities to manage. And there are also probably some in the government, and they will, I think, appreciate this. For starters, the size of the issues you deal with in the government tend to be much larger than anything you deal with in the private sector. There are fewer exact measures of performance or success in the government than there are in the private sector. In the private sector, you've got profit ultimately, but there are subversions of that that you can use quantitatively. In the federal government, there are rules dealing with how you encourage or discourage performance by employees that are as frustrating in implementing by the career people as well as they are by the political leadership. In the private sector, those rules are much less restrictive. In the federal government, there's little gain for taking risks that are successful, and there's enormous penalty if you take risks that are unsuccessful. That's not the way it is in the private sector. There's frequent changeover of leadership in the federal government. The average years of relevant experience to the jobs of leadership in the government is quite minimal compared to the equivalent level of jobs, whether it's deans, presidents of universities, presidents of large corporations. Look at the experience in their own subject matter compared to the experience of most political appointees in the leadership of our country. The political appointees tend not to focus on management. They tend to focus on policy issues. The net result is that over a period of time, relatively little attention is spent on management issues within the federal government. The federal go a government agency is essentially controlled by two different groups of people compared to a corporation which has a CEO and the shareholders. In the case of a government agency, you have 450 CEOs, that's the Senate and the House, and then you have a president with 450 assistants in and around him. That's a very confusing, difficult set of circumstances to operate in, quite different than in the private sector, where the, where the chain of command is really quite straightforward, and the ultimate, and the ultimate uh, people that are evaluating you are quite straightforward. There you have a large number of special assistants are used in the federal structure at the assistant secretary level, undersecretary, deputy, sometimes secretary, frequently secretary. Quite rare in the private sector. 
The consequence of that is they tend to confuse the organization who is trying to respond to the uh, guidance of the ultimate leadership. Finally, there's governmental oversight. Within the departments, you have the inspector general. You also have the general accounting office, the CBO, and more importantly, the authorizing committee, the appropriating committee, and the <clears throat> oversight committees, government reform committees, all looking at you. We had over 150 hearings last year, our department, probably the second or third largest of any of the agencies. Um, finally, there's a lot of non-governmental oversight, national press, uh, trade press, think tanks, uh, the stakeholders. And in addition, we encourage whistleblowers to uh, tell everybody what problems that we, the leadership, are creating. So what's my conclusion? I think that for one's age, the positions in the federal government tend to be the most complicated, large, frustrating, demanding, demeaning, but rewarding of anything else in our society. I also am convinced, having now spent 10 years in the government, that individuals, and this is what the dean said just a few minutes ago, individuals can make a difference. It's not really appreciated until you've been in there, but you really can make a difference. Public service is very difficult. It's essential to our democracy. We need talented graduates of the type that Woody Woo is developing. It's the sort of thing that Teddy Roosevelt had in mind when he said, far better it is to dare mighty things, to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by failure, than to take rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy much nor suffer much, because they live in the great twilight that knows not victory nor defeat. I congratulate you on your 75 years. Good luck, and may you train a lot of people to go in public service. Thank you, Jan. And I'm going to uh, take the privilege of the chair and interject a few remarks myself, uh, throw a couple of fish on the table, I think. Uh, Peggy quite rightly said that if we're going to be successful at all in homeland defense and dealing with the problems of bioterrorism, cyber terrorism, uh, cyber attack, rather, as Ed reminded us, and I think uh, Jan would agree with this, we have to have as good information as we possibly can get about where these threats are coming from and uh, uh, how they're going to be carried out. As many of you know, I've spent a career in the intelligence end of uh, the government's business, and it's with a heavy heart I look at some of the developments that have taken place in that arena over the last year or so. I'm not going to say for one instant that uh, there weren't substantial intelligence failures that contributed to the 9-11 attack and also to our uh, failure to recognize that there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. I can give you a lot of palliatives. I do to my students. Uh, the 9-11 uh, attack was more like Pearl Harbor than anything else that had preceded it. Nobody wrapped their minds around the notion of a, a bandit group uh, commandeering civilian airliners and driving them into a into a building we should have, perhaps. Tom Clancy wrote about it. There were blivets that uh, suggested that that could happen, but we didn't get it. And when I say we, I'm in the government, 
uh, up and down uh, the pike. Uh, as far as weapons of mass destruction are concerned, we presumed on the, uh, we, we made the assumption that Saddam having used uh, chemical weapons against his own population as uh, uh, late as 1991 and uh, against the Iranians in the Iran-Iraq struggle before that time, it was highly likely he would ma maintain those stocks and add to them. We were wrong, and as David Kay said, and Charles Dulfer, dreadfully wrong on that assumption. But what worries me, and remember, at least uh, part of what the government does, both in the executive branch and hopefully in the legislative branch, is to follow the physician's uh, oath, at least do no harm. In the passage of the Intelligence Reform Act of last December, I'm afraid we've let loose some goblins that don't assure me, let's put it this way, don't assure me that we are going to have uh, the kind of information we're going to need to forestall some of these threats as automatically uh, as we assume that that problem has been taken care of. What worries me is that in the creation of a director of national intelligence, we've added another layer of bureaucracy to the whole business of intelligence collection, analysis, and dissemination. It appears to me that because the new director of national intelligence has the responsibility for briefing the president each day on uh, intelligence events, he will have to bring the supporting cast of analysts who do that work down to the White House with him or wherever the Director of National Intelligence is uh, finally located. Secondly, the uh, Directorate of Operations, of which I'm an alumnus, uh, is hurting quite badly. They were hurting before the uh, attacks uh, of 9-11. Uh, we had a loss of manpower of considerable uh, size after the end of the Cold War and uh, by attrition thereafter, and our stocks of individuals who've had personal experience in the Middle East, who speak the difficult languages of that area, and who have some knowledge about the business they're in are really remarkably thin. And on top of that, in the wake of this reorganization, where it looks as if uh, the, the, the DO has been banished to Langley to sit alone. Uh, uh, I'm afraid, at least from the reports that I get, that that, uh, that situation has not been uh, uh, remedied. What is important is, and I frankly think there tends to be, I've spent a good bit of my life in Washington, because of all the pressures that uh, concentrate on that part of the world, there's a tendency to don't stand there, do something. And I'm afraid that's what we did in the context of intelligence reform. What I believe is that at the end of the day, it's the people, stupid. You've got to have first-class people doing these jobs. How you set them up, all the bureaucratic networks, what Jan was speaking about in terms of the interaction between professionals and political appointees. Thankfully, there are not that many political appointees in the intelligence world. They're all relevant questions. But at the end of the day, there is no substitute for having a person on the job who knows their subject account, who's been reading in that area for years and years, and on the collection side has some experience in the area they're being asked to uh, uh, report on. And I can say this without qualification, then let's get into your questions. One of the most distressing aspects of the whole Iraq episode is how little the United States knew as a government and as a polity about that region. 
How could we ever have thought that to overthrow Saddam would lead to garlands and bouquets being thrown in our lap? And that's not a matter of espionage. That's a matter of flat-out knowledge of the region, the area, its history, etc. And that's what we have to deal with. We have to deal with it in a, in a fundamental way in our colleges and universities, and we certainly have to deal with it in the preparation of our public servants. Harumph! <laughs> That's my rant. Now let's go to your questions, please. Sir. I guess, yeah, thank you. We've got two persons are going to bring you a microphone, so please wait. Hi, I have a question for Ed Felton. This is uh, very uh, subjectively motivated, but I think it will be of subjective interest to a lot, and perhaps even general interest under the heading lighting a candle rather than cursing the darkness. Which uh, software or whatever that's readily available either commercially <laughs> or, or, or nonprofit, would you recommend for protecting against and furring out viruses, malware, adware, and all that good stuff? All right. <laughs> well, there, there, there are a number of things that individuals can do. Um, uh, some of them involve installing software, and some involve just being vigilant about things like where that email that you're responding to really came from and so on. Um, as far as products go, you want to have a good virus checker. Uh, there are a number of reputable, uh, number of reputable um, brands, and any, any of the popular brand of virus checkers should be fine. Um, you want to have it and use it. Um, you also ought to have an anti-spyware tool, if, uh, if possible. Uh, spyware is uh, software that malicious software that installs itself in your computer and watches what you're doing and records it and so on. Um, there's a program called Spy, SpyBot Search and Destroy that I like for that purpose, which is free. Um, <laughs> That's a, that, those, those are enough trade secrets, Ed. Yeah. All right. And it's important to update the software you have. Keep it up to date with security patches. Sir, in the... I'd like to address a question to the panel. I'm Tom Gilbert, Woodrow Wilson School, 66. Um, you've all talked about information, and I think... Excuse me, Tom. Let me just interrupt you. Thank you for doing that. I'd appreciate it if you would identify yourselves. We've got a very distinguished group in this audience, and before you pose the question, just let us know who you are. You've done that. Now okay, excellent. Uh, um, you've all have identified tremendous um, areas of importance, and, and in business, one of the things I find is how are you going to use the information and how are you going to access the information? In other words, in an ideal world, uh, anybody involved with Katrina or the uh, nuclear uh, possible uh, holocaust as of, that was acted out could type in a computer uh, nuclear uh, uh, scenario. They could type in 24 hours to a hurricane hitting and the action plans would immediately come up with schedules when the trucks have to go out, when the boats have to go out, when the water provisions have to be made available. Um, all of the things that we're studying, it seems to me, are being done and the things being done uh, by Homeland Security, et cetera, are being done on a sequential basis. In other words, the problems are being 
identified. We have transportation issues. We have to figure that out. And then we'll figure out how to respond to it. It seems to me that I'd like to address to the panel, how are you categorizing? What sort of databases are you putting this information in? What sort of access privileges across departmental lines are being set up so that if there's a homeland security issue or there's a FEMA issue or there's a bioterror issue, the work that's being done, the study that is being done is accessible to all of those people in other departments, they can make a decision. So they can go in and, and type in a potential bioterror situation in the New York subways. And everybody immediately has access to all of the work that's been done, categorized by subject, by schedule, rollout, et cetera, so that the information systems, it seems to me you need a cabinet-level right. MIS system, and I'd like to just have what is the thinking in terms of the application and access for information? Thank you. Peggy, would you uh, lead off, please? Maybe some of your experience in New York is relevant to that. Okay. Yeah, so I can't speak to everything that's going on in government, certainly, but I can speak um, to, you know, some of, of my experiences and some of what I recognize as continuing gaps. Um, what is clear is that we need to think carefully about the range of scenarios potentially before us and develop game plans to address them. We need, I think, to, to think as systemically as possible so that you don't have a million boutique plans, but you have um, systems for response that are as, as broad-based as possible and practiced as much in the real world as possible. When Department of Homeland Security was first being envisioned, um, there's a lot of discussion about how to address the biological threat. And many of us spent a lot of time up on the Hill arguing against moving all of the elements of response for bioterrorism into the Department of Homeland Security because you would disconnect certain critical systems from their sort of routine mission. And I think FEMA, to be honest, may have suffered a bit from this problem. It doesn't mean it can't be fixed within the context of the Department of Homeland Security. But you have to... to practice routinely in order to respond effectively in a crisis. So you have to be able to respond to the church picnic outbreak of um, food poisoning uh, as well as to the anthrax attack. Um, and so, so that's, you know, one important element is the, 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 the practice. In terms of the communication, um, what is really important is recognizing that you have these templates, you have these plans, but whatever presents itself in the real world is going to be a little bit different than what you have planned for. And so flexibility becomes key. Um, and the exchange of information becomes even more important in that case. And we don't have adequate systems at the present time, and I can speak to the biological world more than others, uh, to really support that real-time communication of emerging information with the appropriate screens for accuracy of information also, because if you act on every rumor you hear, then you get yourself deeper in the hole. Um, but there are now developing systems that link federal, state, and local uh, government in terms of, of sharing information, 
pre-event and during an event, and then systems that fan out from the local and state level to critical partners outside of, of government. For example, the New York City Health Department has a fax system that when there is an unusual event will send a fax to every emergency room and every infectious disease epidemiologist and every practitioner and sometimes every corporate medical office um, to say, you know, we have just had, you know, three cases of unexplained encephalitis, brain infection. Uh, we don't know the, the, the cause yet, but it looks as though it may be mosquito-borne and the first presentation of, uh, of a West Nile-like virus. That happened when West Nile first emerged. So those kinds of things give you much more real-time uh, coordination, but it's a continuing problem, and, and we need to both apply the best communication um, capabilities, including systems that work together, um, which is a huge problem, um, with the right, you know, privacy screens and, and protections, and, um, and also how to surface the, the information that's critical for effective response. Thanks, that's good. Ed, you want to take a crack? I will try to add to that. All right, Jan? Well, I'm not an expert on the MIS aspects, but I think, in fact, that much of what you're suggesting is being worked on, and certainly within the department, I think elsewhere within the government, uh, it's certainly true that we've got a variety of ways to share information to states, cities, and to the critical infrastructure and then beyond, depending upon the classification of information we're talking about, and those actually are used quite extensively. Uh, finally, in terms of the variety of possible events, there is no way that one can plan for every single possible thing that might happen. However, we do have, for many, generic uh, events, not 15, but more than 15, 15 the, national, the deal with the national preparedness goals, uh, develop rather detailed plans, in many cases working with states to for them to develop their own plans against those particular uh, circumstances in order that if a situation occurs which is even similar to the particular event that's being planned for, there is a fighting chance that we can then start off reasonably well attuned to what is necessary. Are we there 100 percent? No. Are we better than a week ago? Yes. Are we better than six months ago? Absolutely. So it's, it's an evolution, of, and it's something we all know we've got to work further on. Let me say in amplification of that that the uh, decision was made in creating the Department of Homeland Security that they would not be collectors of information in their own right. They would have a chance to analyze the information that was provided to them by the FBI or by the CIA or whatever other uh, entity on the front line, but they would not be collectors. Uh, that's not been looked at since the bill was passed, but what that's meant is that to some degree DHS is dependent on the input, the feedstock comes from other organizations. Now, in the intelligence reform bill, which I took after earlier, there is, has been created something called an Office of Information Awareness. Come on. And the idea here is that connecting the dots was an issue with respect to 9-11 and uh, uh, in particular. And uh, the way I argue that is, if you're an FBI agent, you work for the federal prosecutor in your district. Your job is to gather evidence for criminal prosecutions. For FBI agents to share that information with other organizations is not something that 
uh, either the court or the prosecutor is anxious to have them do. That habit has to change. That's the habit of a lifetime. It's going to take time to change. It must change. In the case of intelligence, we've all read enough of the spy novels. We know that compartmentation and need to know is the order of the day. Never would we have shared information uh, with another agency if the sources and methods issue uh, were not taken care of. But that cannot be the way we operate now, as we all know. In a terrorist situation, the information has to get out speedily. And I think we had a perfect example of that, actually, in the Washington area two years ago when we had a pair of snipers who were shooting uh, shoppers uh, in Maryland, in Montgomery County, and uh, over in Virginia over a period of several weeks. How to deal with that particular phenomenon was very difficult, but information began to be assimilated such that uh, the authorities, the Montgomery County Police, had the make and model of the automobile. And there was some uh, discussion with the Maryland State Police as to whether or not that information should be put out on the air for the public to be aware of, with the argument being made, well, if you do that, maybe the bad guys will hear you and they'll change the car. Eventually, that information got out. And my point is that how those uh, snipers were uh, apprehended was that a, an alert truck driver got it on his CB, drove by a Maryland State rest area, saw the car parked with the lights out, used his, used his uh, truck to blockade the entrance and called the cops. We got them. And the point is, what's going to happen to the poor Snuffy out on, on uh, Route 1 if he apprehends a... A, uh, a, a person with an obviously bogus, bogus driver's license and some bomb paraphernalia in the back, who does he call in the federal government to get a make on this person so we can know what to do? And the answer is, I'm afraid, Jan, is we're working on it. But that's the way it's, it's going to be. I saw a question here. <laughs> that's not the answer. Fred, that's, that's not right. Jeffrey Hale, class of 76. Uh, I'd like to commend uh, Peggy Hamburg in light of what has been said on uh, her emphasis on cross-disciplinary and public-private partnerships in developing our capacity to deal with potential emergencies. But uh, I'll ask the question first to Peggy Hamburg and John Hodish and then, answer, uh, and then follow with a little bit of a preamble. How would you assess the capacity of public health professionals not just in Washington, but across the country, to identify and respond effectively to pandemic flu or some other major public health emergency? And secondly, how would you assess sure, the quality right. of cooperation with public health professionals in other, in other industrial countries in particular, uh, whose cooperation may be absolutely vital in dealing with uh, uh, major public health emergencies that are transmitted either by travelers or, in the case of avian flu, by migratory birds. The preamble to this comes from doing some research into this you area. Want her to answer that question? Let's answer Sorry? the question. Sorry? Uh, can you let her answer that question? Okay, fair enough. Um, well, I, I will try to avoid giving a two-day seminar in response to your question because it's a subject very close to my heart. Um, unfortunately, the public health infrastructure and public health professionals are 
are woefully underprepared to address um, both many of the uh, demands of natural disease and certainly the threat of biological terrorism, both in terms of, of training to recognize unusual problems and the, um, the support uh, capabilities, including um, very basic communication, computers on desks, um, and laboratory support, et cetera. Um, we don't have the tools in our armamentarium to address many of the, the critical threats before us, whether it's um, unusual diseases that exist in the world but could be used in terrorism, uh, or as yet unknown diseases, we don't have a supply of drugs um, or vaccines uh, that gets us anywhere near to where we want to be. Um, and our healthcare system is clearly completely unprepared for mass casualties or handling um, events with complex requirements such as infection control um, or respiratory uh, isolation. Um, we saw that with Katrina. We see it every year with flu. I think flu is one of the most startling examples of how we're not investing um, to prepare against a critical threat. We know that every year in this country, 35,000 people or so die of influenza. We also know that every year we don't make enough vaccine uh, to protect even the, the sector of our population considered to be at highest risk requiring vaccine. Um, put that in the context of the possibility of the emergence of a pandemic strain, um, we simply don't have the tools that we need at the most basic level uh, to respond. So I think, you know, my own personal view is that we have moved very far in recognizing the seriousness of the biological threats before us, both natural and intentional. We now recognize that health and security go hand in hand, and we now have to, to invest to assure that we have the people, the systems, and the capabilities um, that are proportionate to the magnitude and urgency of the need. And we need to, to think about public health and health care in new ways, and we really need to, um, to re evaluate and reinvest in um, some fundamental requirements that will improve health on a day-to-day -day basis and will certainly improve public health and national and international security. And, and I will add to that that the federal government is actually working at, and I'm not a public health person, but I actually do know, because I've got some of the papers in my office that I've been reading, that we are working to try to think our way through what would happen in, the, in any of the eventualities that you're describing, some of which may well come by the spring. Yes, you. Yeah. We need a, a voice amplifier. Thank you. I'm Bob Herbst from the class of 69. I'm going to assume that everything you just said about flu and uh, biological ri risk is also true for nuclear and chemical and hurricanes. I I'd like to know how much time and money does each of the panel members think is really going to be necessary before we can say we reach a more adequate level of security uh, in these areas. John, you want to start off? 
Sure, I'll start off. I'm a member of the administration. I think we're spending just about at the right level. Love it. Ed, you got a thought? Don't. Um. <laughs> Chertoff's got you on his two-way, buddy. That's pretty good. All right. Well, I'm not going to give you a number either. Um, but, but I do want to point something out uh, that is, I think, especially relevant in um, um, with respect to cyber attack or other kinds of technological attack, and that is even biological attack, and that is the importance of uh, maintaining a basic research program to try to uh, get an advantage over some of these attacks in terms of detection and countermeasures. Um, it's important to spend the right amount to be prepared in the short run and the medium run, but it's also, I think, important to try to get a better handle on these issues in the long term, and that's something that um, that requires an investment, which doesn't need to be large, but needs to be placed carefully. And I would echo that and not try to add a number, but also to say that we have to look at some of these discrete and very serious problems in terms of where our money can most effectively be used. In the nuclear arena, it's very, very important that we address the problem in a preventive way before it have I mean, all this, obviously, prevention is key, but nuclear in particular, let's secure or destroy nuclear materials at their source because that is where we get the biggest bang for our buck um, as opposed to... Oh, yeah. wow. <laughs> I didn't even mean that uh, to be a... <laughs> but you said it. But it is, it's true uh, in so many ways. Um, but, you know, there, there's a relatively straightforward set of activities that are underway but could be quite significantly amplified with um, some additional investments of money so that we don't have to be scrambling after the fact. Once nuclear weapons-grade materials are in this country, finding them is going to be nigh unto impossible, and responding after an attack uh, is going to be uh, devastating. Um, on the biological side, the opportunities for prevention are much more difficult because the biological threat is really embedded in um, the business of modern science, and it takes one or two rogue actors uh, to, to do some pretty bad stuff. So they are making sure that we have in place the systems for early detection, early warning, and rapid effective response uh, become uh, very, very important. So we need to, to look at the threats and look at where targeted investments will make the most difference and then make sure that we do it. Let me, let me, I want to add a little bit more that's a slightly more serious and actually more, I think, uh, reassuring. One of the wonderful things that Secretary Chertoff has done is to insist and talk about the fact that we have to focus on the higher risks and the reason that we have to do that is that's where we want to spend our resources and our money. And we are trying as hard as we can to do that. It's not easy in a democracy, but we're pushing as hard. And that's really the, the real, one of the major goals of our department. I want to just uh, one follow-up, too. It wasn't particularly uh, uh, the focus of your question, but uh, I don't know if many of you saw the uh, op-ed piece yesterday, I think it was, by Jeb Bush in the Washington Post, now taking uh, account of the fact that of the puffery that goes in, into a, a, a Florida governor talking about his own state's preparedness. I thought it was a very good piece on the issue of how, in dealing with hurricanes, Florida has learned the hard way that it starts with the local entities and then moves up through the state system before the 
the uh, call goes to the feds for help. And it strikes me that that's a pretty good analogy for a lot of the issues that have been raised because it's not going to be possible for the federal government to be the first responder in many of these situations countrywide. And uh, I thought that was a good example. Question here in the middle. Sir. Thank you. I'm Steve Rogers from a class of 1952. Uh, one aspect of this I think hasn't uh, been discussed at least as much as I would uh, like to have heard. I wonder if the panel has some suggestions about what might be done to uh, make sure that the Congress plays as constructive a role as possible. <laughs> now, it, standing three, Ask two him. rows behind an eminent senator here, I have to be a little bit careful about what I say. But I'm two things in uh, particular that have been raised uh, come to mind. One is the 150 uh, uh, hearings that you say that your department uh, had to respond to last year. I can't believe that there wasn't some duplication there. And another, <laughs> trying to be careful. Uh, the other thing is there are references either directly or by implication to the appropriations process. And we've heard uh, stories about how appropriations seem to be made on uh, the basis of other uh, of political of considerations other than, uh, than the real basic need. And I'm wonder, wondering what can be done to try to uh, improve uh, the role of the Congress in, in these matters. And I don't mean to put a whole lot of blame on the Congress, but anyway. Would you kindly pass your microphone? Yes, 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 yes. As, as the questioner noted, we have an expert in our very ma uh, ranks. <laughs> Senator Sarbanes, would you take that on, please, before we get in trouble? Well, l let me take the second question first on the appropriations. I, it's a very good question. Of course, uh, the push has been, you know, focus these resources where the, the, the problem is the greatest and don't spread them out uh, across the country. We've tried. We've made some changes to try to do that. Yes, you have. <laughs> and, uh, but it, I mean, I've supported going even further, but then I live in an area where we'd be up close to the top of the list because we're, we have the, we're in the Washington region. We have the Port of Baltimore. So, um, I, I don't have an easy answer to that. I mean, it's always characterized our history when they, when they built the USS Constitution, the warship that's up in Boston Harbor now, that was we were a fledgling nation, and they wanted to have a, have a fleet of warships. Um, so they commissioned six of them. Uh, the Probably the most efficient thing to have done would have been to build them all in the same shipyard, because you would have developed expertise and streamlined procedures. Uh, they built one in every port along the East Coast from top to bottom, coming right down, I think all the way down to Savannah, Georgia, is a, to, to build the ship. So that was all necessary in order to get the support they needed to, to move the appropriations. So we're working at it, and the pressure ought to be kept up. <laughs> I think Senator... 
I think the senator has the last word on that. We're going to, uh, and I thank the panel very much for joining me on this wonderful topic. Thank you very much. Thank you. 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 Thank you.